0: You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. State lawmakers are taking up a bill this afternoon that has to do with getting government agencies to buy more local produce in an effort to support local farmers. Representative Scott Morioshi, who represents parts of Windward Oahu, introduced House Bill 817. He explains why he thinks it's necessary.
1: What the pandemic has shown us is that Hawaii is really too dependent on tourism and, and, and the military, too, to bring in outside money in. Uh, I've been looking for another way to diversify the economy, and agriculture is the logical thing that I thought of uh, for Hawaii to do. The advantage of agriculture being in Hawaii is that we have certain advantages, competitive advantages, over the rest of the world. So we've got year-long growing seasons. We've got the you know proper climate. We've got our geographic isolation actually works to our advantage for uh, research crops and, and seed crops because of less cross- cross-pollination and some other things. so I really think that agriculture export agriculture can be a huge boost to diversifying Hawaii's economy but it shouldn't just be ex- export agriculture we, we also need that food security that growing our own or a lot of our own food provides and you know people have been saying it for years you know we need to diversify our economy we need food security through agriculture but we're really not putting our money where our mouth is. When the state uses its own money to purchase produce for the DOE, for state hospital, for other areas, uh, we only spend about 2 to 4% of the money on locally produced and locally grown agriculture and, pr- and produce. What this bill seeks to do is to set goals to meet for the state that gradually escalate until we reach 50% by 2050 of uh, produce, pr- produce purchased by the state that needs to be locally grown produce.
0: So you think that's doable?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I really think it is. Like I said, we're, we're at about 2 to 4% for the DOE right now, and, and the DOE makes up about 80% of the produce purchased uh, by the state. But Ulupono, who I've been talking to about this bill and, and who helped me draft it, they ran a pilot program called the Ainopono Project, targeting two different geographic areas, one on the Big Island and one in Mililani, uh, to try to encourage those school districts for a period of time, about, for a period of about a year and a half, start purchasing more locally grown produce. And they saw dramatic increases in the amounts of uh, locally grown produce through this pilot program. I mean, we're talking uh, from 4% way up to, you know, 25, 30%. And not only that, but the school lunches that uh, that the local produce was incorporated into saw a dramatic spike in the kids buying the lunches because the lunches tasted better. And the kids, you know, when you have better tasting, uh, healthy school lunches, Kids who want to buy them, so it's actually kind of a win-win. If the state can can spend uh, its money on local agriculture, we are supporting local farmers. We're encouraging that growth. We're encouraging the volume that it needs that they need to grow in order to bring the prices into um, competitive line with mainland prices. And we're also uh, giving kids what they want. We're giving kids the kind of nutritious, delicious lunches that they that they that they will buy.
0: Is there a financial piece of this? You know, because if local produce is more expensive, will the state money not go as far?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, the the point of this bill is to try to bring our local agriculture into line through increases in volume. So I, I do think that it is going to cost us a little bit more, but it will. I'm I'm hoping that by the state investing in local agriculture, it's going to give our local farmers a reason to grow more uh, food, knowing that it's going to be purchased, and that increase in volume should bring the price down somewhat. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we can grow everything here as cheaply as we do on the mainland. That's just not going to happen. But by investing and keeping the money in Hawaii, we're also going to see a benefit to our economy as well. So I think although it will cost the state a little bit more money kind of in the long run, I think the investing in our economy and really trying to bring up another leg in the stool of our economy. Is going to help not only keeping the money in Hawaii, but also in creating another and supporting another industry. So if tourism ever has another hiccup like during the pandemic, we're not going to just fall flat on our faces.
0: Okay, so you're talking about something that could help small farmers, ranchers?
1: Yes, and and large farmers too. This isn't necessarily a district bill. This is more of a statewide bill. I'm not sure it's really focused on necessarily helping farmers in my district. I'm more thinking about helping farmers statewide and helping our statewide agricultural industry but that being said my, my church is actually judging by the the pastor's sermons we are going in a direction of using a lot of church land for agriculture and for food production in the coming years as well so and, and that is located in my district in Kaneohe. I think it's not only food security in case the shipping lines go down or in case there's a dock worker strike I think it really is trying to bring up another industry to support what is a fairly fragile tourism industry, very profitable, but very fragile tourism industry. Like I said, in my mind, the two big things that bring in money are tourism and defense. They bring in outside money into Hawaii. We need another industry in Hawaii that brings outside money in. And I think agriculture, if done right, and if focused on our competitive advantages that Hawaii has, I think agriculture can be another export industry for us.
0: And what do you see the biggest hurdles ahead for your bill?
1: I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's financial. I don't think that the purchase of local produce ended up actually costing the DOE a significant amount more money. But there is going to be some expenditure of funds that are going to be needed to make up the difference, especially in the short term, to buy more local produce. But that's why the bill starts off at only 10 percent by 2025 and then gradually escalates 8 percent a year, until it reaches 50% by 2050. So the advantage is that we can gradually scale this up to 2050 to 50%. And hopefully, by that time, the farmers will be able to increase their volume to be a lot more price competitive with mainland produce.
0: And I know the the governor has, you know, some great goals uh, for us. And he wanted to, you know, increase our ag production by, you know, 50%. And And all of that but nobody really knows you know what we're growing here we don't really have good statistics
1: yeah unfortunately that's true also it's great to have a goal of increasing agriculture I very much support the governor's goal but like I said we need to put our money where our mouth is we can't just have the goal the state needs to also lead the way in our spending habits to encourage agricultural growth we can't just you know give a goal and hope the agricultural community meets it We need to support them in that goal, too, and that's what this bill seeks to do.
0: That was Representative Scott Marioshi talking about a bill he proposed to require state agencies purchase more local produce from Hawaii farmers. The bill, HB 817, is set for a virtual hearing at 2 this afternoon. Uh, Eight years since billionaire Larry Ellison bought the island of Lanai. Since then, he's worked to transform it, renovating the hotels, but also rethinking its future in agriculture and going beyond the pineapple days of billionaire David Murdoch and Dole Foods. Enter Sensei Ag and the CEO that Larry Ellison and David Agus recruited to run the operation during the pandemic. Sonia Lowe was working as CEO of CropOne Holdings, Inc., a vertical farming company that owns Fresh Box Farms in Millis, Massachusetts, and a joint venture with Emirates Flight Catering in Dubai. We caught up with her to better understand what's possible for agriculture on Lanai. So Sensei Ag
2: is about changing the way we feed people using the benefits of indoor growing, And the thing I think that is so visionary about what David and Larry have really decided upon, you know, when I started in May, the first thing I did was sort of lay out a smorgasbord of the things that are possible in indoor ag and also the things that I think are challenges today that would move the needle for the whole industry. And Larry basically said, oh, I, will, I like this thing. I like this thing. We definitely should do this, and we should do this. And what's been fascinating is that even though he doesn't have a background in agriculture, he chose the kind of top four things that when I speak to growers in California, I speak to them in Arizona, I speak to you know, people who are running urban farming ventures around the world, I speak to the seed companies, and they all go, wow. If you can solve those four things, that's amazing because that will move the needle for the industry.
0: When you say four things, what are those four things? So
2: one is that um, we want to be form factor agnostic. So at the moment on the NAI, we have uh, some high-dome polyethylene greenhouses, which are quite large footprint. Each of them is about 20,000 square feet. And they're beautiful, and they produce a lot of food, but they aren't really meant for a high wind environment, right, which Lanai definitely has. And we'll be building other form factors on the island, as well as we also have a farm in California, and we have a farm in British Columbia. So... And all of those are different form factors as well. So within indoor growing, you have, of course, the high-tech glass houses. You have now the more famous vertical farms, which are inside concrete buildings, and they're completely artificially lit and artificially cooled and heated. And then you have all the way to sort of cheap plastic hoop houses. and. You know, one of the things that Larry said when I started, he said, you know, how are we going to inform ourselves about being better growers if we only know how to grow in one type of structure? And I said, well, that's a very good question. (laughs) So he said, well, we should definitely have different types of structures. So that's probably the one thing that makes us Uh, very unique. And as we accumulate data at scale about how to grow in different form factors, uh, we would love to share that with other growers. I think that's probably the second thing that makes us unique is the fact that we readily want to share data. And uh, we want to enable other growers to become better growers. Because of David's research in medicine and human wellness, You know, we want to take the learnings that he has uh, about food and nutrition and apply those to the development of the plants that we are growing in our greenhouses or in our vertical farms so that we're really trying to improve the nutritional value of the foods that we grow. And then lastly, you know, we're not really looking to sell technology components. We look to enable farmers and farming partners, which really means that, you know, we're kind of setting up a franchise type of relationship. So that's not so unique. I think there are definitely other players out there that are doing
0: that sort of franchise relationship. But, you know,
2: the other three things that we're doing are pretty
0: unusual. So this is like cutting edge ag. I mean, it's high tech farming. Yes. Farming for the future.
2: Well, farming for the here and now, certainly uh, we, we we are producing food, and you know my basic premise of anything in ag tech is that unless you're a good farmer first, you're certainly never going to sell anything to another farmer
0: and so, where do you see this going? I see it going in
2: a number of directions. One is the very large farms, which are sort of nation state infrastructure types of farms, where they are established for food security. I see a gathering, um, in fact, a blanketing, I hope, of small farms where we have iterated the form factor over and over again so that we lower costs to the point where really they are accessible to, you know, a neighborhood. And that is then able to create food security in food deserts. And then I see that Both the geographic proximity to the point of consumption as well as the seeds that we're developing in partnership with seed companies for these indoor-grown formats really provides better nutrition overall.
0: Well, I have a philosophy. If it's not that good, don't eat it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And and I happened to buy some locally-grown celery, and it was just delicious.
2: Yeah. Would you rather eat a tomato that has been plucked from a greenhouse that's in your neighborhood, walking distance, or would you rather eat a tomato that's traveled for two weeks and been gassed in the truck?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's an easy, that's an easy question. <laughs>
2: yeah, but the reality is that the tomatoes we get most of the time in the supermarkets, they're not red because they've been sun-ripened. They're red because they've been gassed, and they were picked green.
0: Right, and they don't taste very good.
2: And they taste awful. Oh my gosh! Well, it's true. You want to eat things that are fresh, that are proximate, that have been grown within a 24 hours of your sitting on your table. You know, you don't want to be eating stuff that's two weeks old. It's definitely sort of the marvels of modern technology that are allowing us to eat apples that have been stored for a year after harvest.
0: Well I shared that I was at the market and I had to go buy greens and I looked at the romaine lettuce that you know we normally buy and then I I happened to see a sensei romaine lettuce and I chose that and it was very delicious.
2: I'm so glad that uh, it was delicious and I'm so glad that we were able to be in your local market. It's one of these things that I always find incredibly gratifying.
0: Well, during this pandemic, there has been this support local, support our local farmers, buy our local produce uh, because they needed an outlet um, for, their, for their greens. And we're in this transition. You know, we, here in Hawaii, we don't have sugar. Uh, we have corn seed. We don't do a pineapple like we used to. Yeah. So we don't have big ag. And, and we've got lots of small farmers trying to make a go of it. But it is very hard to farm here in Hawaii.
2: Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, on one hand, you have beautiful weather, uh, mostly year-round, and, you know, you used to have fantastic soil, uh, and I think that soil is now bouncing back. But for for a long time, it was farmed very intensively. And, you know, I think that the indoor growing is going to be increasingly important in Hawaii because of the ability to guarantee 365 days a year of production and the ability to allow that soil to rest up and to be rehabilitated so that soil-based crops can also be grown again.
0: And you mentioned that the structures that you have there on lanai are great for high wind.
2: So they're very tall. They're these beautiful domed greenhouses and lanai can sometimes have winds up to 85 miles an hour. So the Structures are porous, but if we get sort of storm-level winds, the initial design, which was really intended more for a desert environment, needed repairs. So now they've been repaired, they work well, but, you know, Lanai, I think, in retrospect, might have had a different form factor that would have suited better.
0: And so what do you think there'll be a plan B? I think there's definitely additions to the
2: farm. We're working through, we have a climate model that allows us to assess how many micromoles of direct light every plant will get in one of our facilities. And then from there, we derive our choice of uh, indoor growing facility. So it'll be some form of, indoor agriculture, but we'll, we're, we're going to add different pieces to
0: it. What is it that attracted you to take this job? You know, what was the challenge of this type of growing, you know, on a place like Lanai?
2: I think islands are very challenging for food production because, of course, you have what will grow on a native basis, but, you know, almost everywhere in the world today uh, that is in a developed economy has a global palate, And that necessarily means the importation of food. So I think, you know, having fresh produce is uh, wonderful. But having fresh produce on an island is just a climate challenge. Because if you don't have a climate that is steady, and nobody does, of course, 24 hours a day and uh, 365 days a year, then you have to sort of intervene and create an infrastructure that allows you to do that. I think secondly, you want to be growing the vegetables that, and the fruit that the local community wants. And right now in indoor growing, there isn't necessarily a huge variety of what can be grown just because most of the seeds that are in the market are bred for outdoor growing. And, you know, so you have the seed and the genetics of that seed, but then you have also what's known as a phenotype. And the phenotype is how that seed actually expresses itself when it's grown in a different environment. And I'll just give you an example of that. Uh, Iceberg lettuce, when we mostly think of iceberg lettuce, is that hard, white, crunchy ball, right? Well, if you grow (laughs) iceberg lettuce, that same seed... In an indoor environment, it can be dark green and frilly leafed. One of the things that we are learning in Manai is what is the seed going to express itself uh, like phenotypically once we plant it in our greenhouse. And then finally, the big challenge is energy and water. So all of the islands, of course, are water limited. And I think in this respect, greenhouses are phenomenal because they use about a tenth of the water of uh, outdoor growing. And, you know, form factors like vertical farming use about 1% of the water. So our goal is to continue to diminish water usage and, you know, increase crop variety, increase crop nutrition or the nutritional value of crops and really grow what the market wants to eat. And then on the energy side, the cost of energy on islands is uh, extraordinarily expensive. And we are building solar capability that allows us to, you know, really rely more on the sun for our power. But, you know, these these are all considerations that make growing on an island quite challenging.
0: That was Sonia Lowe, CEO of Sensei Ag on Lanai Island, talking about urban farming and the efforts to find better ways to farm, whether it be indoors in vertical structures or just giving our soil a chance to regenerate.
2: The news and music you hear on HPR are supported in part by nearly 200 local organizations that make us a part of their communication strategy. Mahalo to Asset Schools, Bank of Hawaii, and Anchor Systems Hawaii. They believe just as you do in the power
3: of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org.
0: Lucilla Beats Reality Check has a story about an effort by Zippy's restaurants to encourage its workers to get vaccinated against COVID-19. Uh, reporter uh, uh, Brittany Light joins us this morning. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So Zippy's, huh?
4: Yeah, Zippy's is considering doing what quite a few large national retailers have already started doing, which is providing an incentive to employees who choose to get the COVID-19 vaccine. General Dollar has done this, Trader Joe's, Aldi, quite a few large retailers that we all know by name. And now Zippy's, one of our hometown businesses is considering um, offering a perk to employees who who decide to get their shot.
0: Yeah. I I remember also reading uh, that some of our uh, uh, poultry producers Uh, have started to offer those incentives to get their workers, uh, you know, protected against the coronavirus.
4: That's right. And so Zippies is still assessing whether there might be any legal issues surrounding this idea of promoting vaccine uptake. But the plan that they have is to offer these digital tokens that employees will get. If they do get vaccinated, and they'll be able to redeem them for different things in sort of like a virtual marketplace, and they want the tokens for uh, folks who do get the vaccine to be equivalent to about four hours worth of bonus pay.
0: Well, that's an interesting concept. Is that being like modeled after someplace else? Do you know?
4: You know, Zippy's already has a platform that their employees use that has. These virtual tokens. And, and so they're just kind of adding some of this, uh, the, the vaccine um, uptake promotion to that. Uh, the company also wants to provide some incentives by offering these digital tokens to employees who download the Aloha Safe Alert app, which uh, of course is the app that the state has helped to to create that kind of uh, helps with contact tracing in a way if, if, if folks have it turned on, you can kind of tell if you've been near somebody who has tested positive for the virus.
0: And I know that there are some, uh, I think, government entities that are allowing their workers to, you know, get time off to go get vaccinated.
4: That's right. Employers are looking at this from from different ways. I think some companies are, are offering free Uber rides to, to workers who want to get vaccinated Right now, you know, Hawaii officials say that employers and the state government cannot mandate vaccinations while they're still only approved for emergency use. So employers are kind of getting creative. And um, I know Zippies is saying that they, they don't want to force folks to get vaccinated, but they really want them to make an informed decision. Zippy's has brought in some doctors from Kaiser to talk to employees, have candid conversations where they can ask questions. Just so so when these employees do make a decision, when they are eligible for the vaccine, they're making a good decision with all the right
0: information. And and how does this work? Because, I mean, uh, I would think restaurant workers, they aren't in the category, right, that's being vaccinated now, are they?
4: Correct. So most employees at a place like Zippy's aren't yet eligible. They'll be eligible when 1C is able to get vaccinated. So... So the companies, again, is thinking ahead They're kind of trying to figure out if there are any legal issues with doing a program like this. You know, they want to be smart. They want to be careful. But Zippy's is, is a business that sees its role as an employer, as one that can really help our state, you know, get to a certain level of vaccination that maybe will help us achieve herd immunity. So they, they see their role um, in this kind of effort to to go back to some degree of normalcy.
0: And do they have any idea how many of their employees would be willing to get vaccinated?
4: I don't know. I don't know if they did a survey. I know that some businesses did survey their employees and, um, perhaps decided that an incentive program was not necessary because they had such a large percentage of their employees willing to get vaccinated. So, uh, Quite a few employers are taking that route of of doing a survey, kind of sensing what their workers think about the vaccine before they even
0: consider doing an incentive program like this. And uh, zippies stepping up to the plate like this, I mean, are there other companies, local companies that we know of who are willing to talk about it? There are some
4: other small businesses that I'm aware of that do have these frontline workers that are offering incentive programs and some are hesitant to talk about it because it has become uh, a contentious issue among some workforces. Uh, you know, there are lots of different opinions on the vaccine, and, and some employers, you know, just don't really want to promote the fact that they're um, encouraging their workers to do this because uh, it has created some tension among some some employee bases.
0: All right. Well, uh, appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Brittany. Take care. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. Read her story online at civilbeat.org.
2: Support for HPR comes from Sacred Hearts Academy, dedicated to developing girls who aspire to become women who inspire with a virtual open house, 11 a.m. Sunday, February 28th. Registration at sacredhearts.org.
0: You know, we discussed the state's looming deadline for homeowners to convert cesspools to septic tanks or some other system uh, on a show that we aired last month. One listener uh, wrote in; he shared his uh, difficulty with the requirement.
5: Aloha, my name is Ralph Giles. I'm calling from Maui, Hawaii. Haiku. I'm calling regarding the segment that you did pertaining to cesspools. Um, I have one. I this the pool happens to be directly under the house the house was built on top of it and there's absolutely no more room i only have five feet in front of my house about six feet behind the house one foot on one side of the house and about four feet on the other side of the house i don't know where you would put another septic system of any type i've asked one engineer They said that it would cost somewhere around $150,000 for me to lift the house and to put in the system. I don't know what the the county or the state plans, but I don't have that kind of money. The house is only valued at $40,000, even though I could sell it for $700,000. Something else has to be done because people can't afford this and the engineers are great but they're not working with us they're working for someone else so something else has to be done thank you
0: we also received uh, this uh, email on the cesspool topic from a listener Uh, frank writes my wife and i purchased a home in the volcano area on the big island back at the beginning of 2020 in fact two other people purchased a home on the same block within six months of each other Now, each of us purchasers were represented by a real estate agent, and not one of those real estate agents mentioned to any of us buyers about the law that requires cesspools to be replaced by the year 2050. No mention at all. In fact, my wife and I would not have purchased this home had we known that the cesspool needed to be replaced. It is my opinion that the real estate agents intentionally didn't mention this requirement because they didn't want to lose a sale. Imagine making a hefty amount of money while practically doing nothing to earn it except print out forms and show homes, and you don't mention this important material fact to your clients. Even the real estate industry in Hawaii didn't think it was necessary to change the disclosure form to reflect this important requirement. I sent a letter to Governor Ige, also sent a copy of my letter to him, to most of the state representatives, and nobody responded to my letter. Sincerely, Frank. Thanks for the feedback. Email us at talkback at Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our Talkback line at 792-8217. <laughs> contracts for all government unions are up this summer. Will there be a change to the policy of remote working as part of those labor talks? Well, we reached out to the head of the largest public sector union. Randy Pereira is in charge of HGA, the Hawaii Government Employees Association. Here's what he had to say.
6: Well, there are initial problems, as everybody knows. Uh, There are a number of people whose jobs just don't lend itself to working from home, or at least not at the time. Since then, I think There has been a lot of adaptation by government, certainly things have changed where now electronic signatures are more readily accepted, more documents can be processed electronically. And as a result, I think in some workplaces, they're finding that productivity has actually increased uh, and employees have been able to get more done by doing it remotely. In a lot of places, what we're seeing is that they're rotating staff just to ensure social distancing. They're rotating staff different days of the week. So staff does get into the office so that they can access documents or do whatever they need to do. Uh, And then they'll rotate in and out. So, so far, we don't have very much in the way of complaints. And I think um, the employers have gotten a lot better and more responsive in terms of addressing whether people are going to be working remotely or when they have to be physically in a building someplace.
0: So do you think we're going to have some changes to a telework policy?
6: Well, there is an existing telework policy that the state had developed some years ago. Uh, There may be some tweaking that they would suggest to... Accommodate some of the what the lessons learned from the pandemic, Catherine. But I think, sure, I, I, the policy is here to stay, and I think now you'll see more agencies being willing to allow. Teleworking, where it is in the better interest of the state as well as for the employees, and certainly from our perspective, whatever works works, and you know we're not we're not getting in the way of that by any means. As a matter of fact, a lot of our members were disappointed several years ago when, for whatever reason, the state had shut down its telework center that they had in Mililani. Uh, A lot of people had occasionally at least taken advantage of that. And it was somewhat of a disappointment for them to go backwards. I don't, I don't characterize anything really as a silver lining when it comes to this pandemic, but certainly the ability to work remotely is something uh, a little bit positive that's come out of all this.
0: Well, over the many decades, you know, there have been proposals of a four-day work week, staggered work hours, and for whatever reason, you know, government chose not to go that direction. But I imagine, you know, traffic is just, you know, so different now because not everybody's on the freeway at the same time to no,
6: be there at eight. that's true. And actually, it's not entirely true that government didn't go down the road. I think government chose not to go down the road of a of a complete modified work week or four day week or what have you. But we've got numerous agreements with individual employees or with different offices where employees are working either four-day weeks on a rotation basis or with some kind of modified work schedules, still ensuring that the the public service hours in statute are covered, but we've got a number of cases where the employers have been willing, and the state in particular has been willing to reach agreement with its employees for for more flexible schedules. So it's been happening right throughout. It's just not universally done.
0: Okay, so. The government contracts are up this summer. I mean, mm-hmm. is this going to be a piece in the labor talks?
6: I don't know how much there is really at this point. Um, I, like I said, there's been a policy in place for quite a while. And unless the employers are looking to tweak that policy in some way, I think what we've done in other agreements where people modify their hours is the the policy is broad enough that it allows for flexibility and the employee uh, with our support really reaches an understanding with their managers and you know we kind of we may solidify that into some form of written document but we'll do things more on a case by case basis i think what you'll see perhaps is a move to more of these uh, agencies that are proposing remote work and some of the managers that that i've talked to in the last several months have suggested that given the success as well as just given more crowded workspaces they're looking to continue the the telework option beyond that point where the pandemic has really required it so you know we're we're looking forward to see, and, and, and there may be some things that we discuss in, in bargaining, but uh, like I said, the is in place, so it may not be totally necessary.
0: When are the reopeners for the contract uh, talks?
6: We've already submitted, and as a matter of fact, you know, at this point, both sides have exchanged proposals, and I don't recall in any, any bargaining unit where the telework issue was, was put on the table, but that doesn't preclude the parties from agreeing to, to talk about it for sure.
0: Well, I know there are departments where they can't work remotely, mm-hmm. you know, because it's it's sensitive stuff, whether it's a tax office or the employee's retirement system or the health department. But as far as the employees who are working at home, I mean, do they have enough laptops or computers? I mean, how is that all working out with with uh you know government providing some of the equipment that they might need or paying for their uh, internet.
6: Well, we haven't seen government paying for for people's internet. Uh, certainly, broadband capability I- is a necessity for individuals to do to do work re- remotely from home. In many instances, there may be some issues like that that the parties, that both the state and us, would have to discuss. But you know, for the most part. We haven't, or at least at my level, I have not heard about a lot of individual complaints about the equipment uh, and other things. It seems that great flexibility was provided within the bounds of confidentiality and, as you said, sensitive stuff that uh, people aren't able to take out of the workplace. But, you know, we have some glitches, but for the most part, it's been working.
0: What about opening up maybe some of these jobs uh, or hard to hard to fill jobs uh, by folks that don't live here in Hawaii
6: uh that's news to me um
0: I mean I think they're they're considering that on the federal level right. you know but I mean is that something that that would work here in Hawaii
6: I think that's something that we'd have to talk about because uh, that's that's a concept that, that at no time has the state ever brought up that concept with us, and I think that would be something that we'd have to explore a little bit more. Uh, there are, as just as you said, now maybe in not in every case, but there are certain sensitivities, and uh, at the same time, I think just talking through my hat, I would say, then there's some there's some tax issues, because if the state of Hawaii is going to be paying a wage to somebody, I presume that they're going to want to capture some taxes. Uh, but if that individual is filing taxes in his or her home state, you know, two states can't collect tax on the same income. So I think there are some issues that would have to be considered.
0: Okay. So as you look down the pipeline of where this idea of telework and where, you know, where it's going to go, um, I don't know, <laughs> what what are you predicting?
6: I I think that more as as we're seeing in the private sector, I think more government offices will be seen an, an increase in the amount of remote work that is allowed and encouraged. I think one thing that the state PROBABLY HAS BEGUN TO ASSESS, AND I HAVE NOT TALKED TO THE COMPTROLLER ABOUT THIS, BUT AS YOU KNOW, STATE GOVERNMENT LEASES A LOT OF SPACE. THERE ARE BUILDINGS THAT that ARE PRETTY MUCH FULL. THEY LEASE A LOT OF OTHER SPACE, AND uh, THIS WORK, uh, WORKING FROM HOME OR DOING WORK REMOTELY, may well allow the state to cut back and save uh, where otherwise they'd be expending monies on rent. So I think there are some positives, clearly, that come from all of this. And I would anticipate within the next year or so, you'll see kind of it solidifying into longer term uh, work arrangements where people do their work remotely and not always coming into town and like you said, having a positive impact on traffic as, as well.
0: We've been hearing from HGA's Randy Pereira, the head of the largest public sector union, about working remotely and the possibility of changes to the state's telework program. The ongoing pandemic has illustrated the need to pivot to remote health care. The Freeman Foundation, Hawaii Community Foundation, and HMSA have partnered to provide $1.3 million in grants to 14 federally qualified health centers across the state in order to boost telehealth service. Uh, We continue our telehealth conversation with Dr. Emmanuel Kintu of the Kalihi Palama Health Center. He sat down to talk to HPR's Jason Ubai about the pushback to telemedicine.
1: Has
6: there been some pushback? Because I know there's always some level of hesitancy for change in technology. So have you seen any pushback on adopting telehealth when you see that it's a workable situation?
3: Yes, we've got patients who refuse to use telehealth. We've got patients, especially some of our seniors, uh, seniors who have uh, uh, language needs as well. There are some who've said uh, uh, no. And there are some who have really struggled with this. So you can start a telehealth with a person and maybe you run into some issues with the person uh, being able to use the tool. For instance, uh, picture in mind a person who has a wound and you're talking about how it is that you can take care of that uh, wound and you want to see what the wound looks like. And you ask them to take their smartphone uh, and uh, get uh, the picture of the wound so that you can see the wound. They take the smartphone, they go to the wound, but then the smartphone continues to uh, spin because of you're moving the smartphone, you're changing the orientation of the phone so it spins. You see the picture but it is not the same as looking at it uh, uh, when it's in the right orientation. Um, We've had a few who, after they come in and we show them what to do, uh, they're fine with it. Uh, But there are some, especially people, who have had connectivity problems one or two times, and they say, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, We've had some where we started off as a telehealth with the video but because of connectivity, you start getting a frozen picture and whatnot. We've switched over to just audio. Now, that has some significant uh, additional limitations going to just audio. But in some cases, it is really vital because uh, you can still put across a significant amount of information to a person using just audio, and we've had uh, several situations where we have been able to uh, get to a point of adjusting a person's medications. Uh, You talk to the pharmacy, the pharmacy is able to deliver the medication to the person, and that ends up holding the person until you get an opportunity to do either a telehealth visit later or for that person to come
2: in. Going into the future, uh, what what do you hope
6: uh, your health center can do in terms of telehealth?
3: I think there is no turning back. There really is no turning back. Uh, We are going to have telehealth for the foreseeable future. There are going to be things that might be improved. Connectivity is one of those one of the significant setbacks is when you have a connection that deteriorates. That is one of the most significant complaint that we've received from uh, the care team. And it is, of course, one of the significant ones that we receive from uh, patients as well, although for some, uh, not being touched by their physician uh, means that they didn't receive care. So there's that as well. I think that uh, for uh, established patients, telehealth is a significant plus. It does not replace in-person visits totally. There have to be the in-person visits where the provider can interact with the patient, get to know the patient, touch the patient. Uh, But for follow-up kinds of things, I think uh, telehealth is with us to stay especially as we improve the infrastructure. Uh, Behavioral health is another one, especially for things like therapy, where uh, telehealth has been a significant plus for us. For established patients, and again, it is the established patients. New patients, it hasn't worked that well for us. And uh, the providers have, uh, behavioral health providers have indicated that uh, and uh, that leaves a lot to be desired. If we run into a situation where the person has their caseworker with them, then uh, telehealth is okay for a new uh, patient because the caseworker can fill in uh, some gaps that uh, the provider who is at a distance just looking at a picture might not get. Um, but we're saying that... Uh, Preferred for behavioral health is to use telehealth for established patients. Uh, it has been more effective there uh, than for new patients, and this is essentially for the therapy. An issue here, especially here in Hawaii, has been that in some cases the patients do not have an appropriate environment within which to do telehealth. They might be uh, in a household that is rather dense, so they don't have the privacy to do their telehealth. We've had some, especially uh, junior, junior folk, uh, teenagers, having to leave the, the, the house and do their telehealth with their provider outside. Uh, we've had people who Um, the the providers could tell, or the care team could tell that uh, they probably are not able to say everything that they need to say. For instance, if you have a person uh, who is in an abusive kind of relationship uh, and you're looking at some uh, uh, lesions on the skin or something like that and asking questions about what happened there, uh, some answers have not been uh, forthright. So there are some limitations, but it's, we don't see it going away. The f- other flip side that we talked about is also a significant one in that when you have a provider at home, uh, for whatever reason, uh, you can still have that provider as being useful. They can still see patients. And in our case, where we have a significant number of people who require translation, you might have a community health worker who is stationed at one office, supporting several offices using telehealth. Um, you can have that telework, that uh, community health worker at home. Uh, if they have an appropriate environment, they can still support interpretation or the interaction between the care team and the patient so there are some flexibilities that have been brought into the practice and we don't see those going away neither do we think that it would be appropriate for those to go away Uh, i think as time goes on uh, some of the challenges are still going to be assuring that you have the security Um, assuring that you have any time you have something coming into your network, there are question marks of do you have unforeseen vulnerabilities. So we are on the lookout of that, making sure that uh, we strive to maintain security. There is the environment, the environment that the person is in when they're doing the telehealth. Uh, That's another critical kind of thing amongst the things that we have things that we have to resolve.
0: That was Dr. Emmanuel Kintu of Kalihi Paloma Health Center. He was talking to HVRS Jason Ubai about the challenges of telehealth at community health centers. Have anything to share about your experience with seeing your doctor during the pandemic? Call or talk back line at 808-792-8217.
2: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art's exhibition, O Kalani, featuring works by contemporary Native Hawaiian artists Sean K. L. Brown and Imai Kalani Kalahele, extended
6: through April 11th, HonoluluMuseum.org.
1: Join HPR Saturday, March 6th for a virtual concert with Sean Pimental and friends. It's an evening of traditional and contemporary Hawaiian music from one of the state's most accomplished music producers. Enjoy the magic of the Atherton Studio in your own living room. Reserve your spot at HPRTickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership, Wealth Management.
0: Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, we hear from a Big Island doctor whose patient was one of the first to receive a prescription under the Medically Assisted End of Life Program, but he was unable to use it before he died. We would like to hear from you. Do you have a story to share about a loved one, maybe lost to COVID-19? You can call our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.